Hey, it's Dr. Marissa Lee Naismith here, and I'm so honored to be sharing today's interview round episode with you. Listen, and you will be inspired by amazing healthcare practitioners, voice teachers, and music industry professionals who will share their stories, knowledge, and experiences within their specialized fields to help you live your best life every day. As singers, our whole body is our instrument, and our instrument echoes how we feel physically, mentally, and emotionally. So don't wait any longer. Take charge and optimize your instrument now. Remember that to sing is more than just learning about how to use the voice. It's about a voice and beyond. So without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Over the past many, many months, we have been inundated with news, views, perceptions, misconceptions and conspiracy theories around COVID-19. To be honest, I am just as tired of it as most of you are. Much of what we read is based on hearsay and what the media wants us to know and not being drawn from rigorous research. Let me say, First and foremost, I do stand for freedom of speech and freedom of choice. However, the unfortunate thing about all this misinformation is that it is causing a great divide between friends, families and communities. For this reason, We held an Ask Me Anything event some weeks ago where we invited Dr. Nidhi Krishnan to join us to respond to all your questions. Dr. Nidhi Krishnan is the registrar in the paediatric ward of Logan Hospital in Queensland, Australia, and is an adjunct lecturer at the James Cook University. In this AMA, it was my clear intention to seek answers to the more common and pertinent questions from a healthcare professional with a science background who has derived all her knowledge around COVID-19 from working on the front line as well as receiving daily updates from the appropriate official sources. Questions were asked around the very existence of COVID-19, what it is, how it spread, the variants, the types of vaccines, testing protocols, preventative measures we can all take, the effectiveness of lockdowns, and the long-term health impacts of having had COVID-19. All the information offered by Dr. Nidhi Krishnan was explained in a very clear and concise manner that made absolute sense. Based on the overwhelming number of requests to replay this AMA, we have decided to release the replay as an episode. So here it is. This episode is not about changing people's opinions. It is about education and it is our hope that it may help to dispel some of the myths and conspiracy theories that are circulating in our communities, creating angst and chaos. This is not to be missed information. So without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for joining us at this live Ask Me Anything event around COVID-19. I appreciate you taking the time to be here, especially at the moment because there is so much fake news. There are so many misconceptions around COVID. There are myths. There are conspiracy theories. And to be totally honest, I'm sick of hearing them. And so I'm, a, I'm being a little bit selfish here in gathering everyone that I possibly can to join us for this event and to have someone who is, in, who is a healthcare worker, a professional in the healthcare industry, who comes from a science background, 
who is being educated on a daily basis about COVID-19. The aim of this event is to try and dispel some of those myths that are out there, to try and educate people if they're willing to listen, to try and calm people down because there is so much angst and there is so much anxiety and a lot of these myths and rumours and and these misconceptions are really causing chaos and people are fearful. So if we can calm down even a handful of people via this event, I feel I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. Now, what I don't want to do by having this event is we are not here to change people's opinions. By that, I mean we are not here to brainwash people. We are not here to persuade people into doing anything they don't want to do. We are not discouraging freedom of speech, but we are here to try and educate. So that is the goal of this event and to provide information. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Nidhi Krishnan. Nidhi works at Logan Hospital. She is the registrar in the paediatric department at the hospital. She also is an adjunct lecturer at James Cook University and is in the front line dealing with everything that we are not dealing with and so has far more, much more experience and knowledge on the topic of COVID-19. So, Nidhi, welcome to our AMA and thank you so much for offering your time to be here. My absolute pleasure. I'm hoping to answer some questions that might be out there and um, if I can't answer them, point you in the right direction at least. (laughs) Well, thank you because we, we did say in the marketing for the event that You are not an infectious diseases specialist. You are not an epidemiologist, uh, but you are a healthcare professional, a doctor with a science background. So that is who you are. And if you don't know anything, as you kindly said, you will refer people to the correct sources. People have been putting up on social media Does anyone know anyone personally who has had COVID-19? Now, I'm assuming by that, and it was yes or no, was just put yes or no. Now, I'm assuming by that people are asking or questioning the very existence of COVID-19. So can you please talk to us about your experiences with covid Yeah, look, so I can speak both personally and professionally. I might quickly touch on my personal experience with COVID, which is actually I have a lot of family overseas. Being from an immigrant background, most of my family is scattered all over the world. Um, A lot of those people who are in India and when India was quite literally suffering from a lot of this, a lot of my family members um, were affected and I did have a couple of family members also pass away from this. So purely from a personal level, I think this is very, very real. Professionally, particularly being in the paediatric space, I'm lucky to not have treated anyone directly with COVID-19 as up until quite recently in Brisbane, this was predominantly affecting adults and not so much children. Um, However, um, a lot of my colleagues work on COVID wards at the PA hospital, have been affected by patients and transmission and um, things like that in their workspace. So I think they would also 100% say that this is real. Um, And I don't think it's, you know, fake news that COVID-19 is here. Yes, I know. I've heard every conspiracy theory there is, I'm sure, as I think this has brought out the best and the worst in everybody. I, too, know people who have had covid 
mainly from the UK and the US, and I know people who have lost family members also. Okay, so what is COVID-19? Like what actually is the thing? Yeah, so look, to not get super sciencey about it, but it is a virus um, and it's a part of a family of viruses called coronavirus. So I know that people have referred to COVID-19 as coronavirus, but it's actually a type of coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Um, And the family of viruses called coronaviruses exist on a spectrum of severity in terms of the symptoms that they can cause. Um, To give some examples, the other ones that you might have heard of in the last few years was actually SARS and MERS, which luckily we weren't hugely affected by in Australia, but they also exist in the family of coronaviruses. And then, you know, there's other virus families like influenza or um, rhinovirus, which is the common cold. So it's it's a virus. Right. So... What are the variants? As far as I know, there's alpha and there's the the delta. Are they the only two at this point of time? Yeah, so we've actually identified four variants. So alpha, beta, gamma and delta. But you're 100% right in terms of what we talk about is predominantly alpha and delta. And I think that's because beta and gamma that exist kind of in the middle there um, don't behave that differently to the other variants. So whilst it does exist in the lab to try and decide where this we use the variants to actually track where the virus is originated and where it's come from. But in terms of how it affects individuals, there wasn't a huge difference until this Delta variant seems to have reared its head a little bit. And then now we're actually talking about variants. Right. And what are the differences? We will keep it then to Alpha and Delta. What are the differences between the two variants? Yeah, so the way that the variants actually come about is the longer the virus kind of circulates in the community, it adapts. It's very intelligent. Mm -hmm. It's a living thing. And it's trying to survive much like every other living thing on this planet. So it's adapting and it's changing to try and survive survive itself. So with that um, is how we get these variants. And they do all behave slightly differently. With regards to alpha and delta, so the evidence out there at the moment suggests that vaccination is um, useful against both variants. Um, Certainly there's some concern that when you're vaccinated with um, and you have the delta variant, you might be more likely to transmit that and pass Um, infect other people with the Delta variant. And there are some concerns that the Delta variant is causing more severe illness, particularly in the unvaccinated population. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do we detect the virus? Yep, so we can do it a couple of different ways. The most common one is the swab up the nose and the swab in the throat, which whilst very uncomfortable is not painful. Um, I've had multiple (laughs) over the last 18 to 24 months Um, and it's a very safe test. The other way that sometimes in very specific circumstances we can do some blood tests and that's often how we can kind of tell certain details about the virus but for the general population it'll be a swab up the nose and a swab at the back of your throat and will that tell us which variant it is so not straight away but they can certainly do further analysis to do that and that's exactly how they're tracking the spread of this through the community right are the symptoms between the two different so is there a difference the symptoms between alpha and delta Yeah, so as far as I'm aware, I think the symptoms, especially the initial symptoms, are very much the same, which is your classic cold and flu type symptoms. So it does make it quite difficult to identify because it's your cough, your sore throat, your runny nose, some fevers, all relatively nonspecific. Um, The concern with the Delta variant is that it can then progress to being quite severe. Right. The two variants, are they spread differently? No, they spread exactly the same. Okay, so one is 
not more contagious than the other? So I think the concern is more about the, the way that it's spread is coming into close contact with other people. Um, particularly, we call it droplet spread. So that's yeah. if they're coughing or sneezing. And the other thing to keep in mind is droplets can also live on surfaces. So um, kitchen counters, railings, um, elevator, escalator hand, handlebars and things like that. Um so it's spread by a droplet, no matter what variant. There are some concerns that the Delta variant is potentially more contagious. So it might exist on surfaces for longer, right. more likely to potentially be infected by it. I think a lot of the details around that are still coming out, and I couldn't say that I know the specifics about, about that. Mm-hmm. So how does the 14-day period that people are isolated, how does that help stop the spread? What is it about 14 days? Yeah. So it's all kind of based on every virus out there has a different what's called an incubation period. Um, So kind of how long it takes for it to start kind of affecting you and developing symptoms and things like that. We know that typically with COVID, the incubation period's around five days. 97% of people will develop symptoms by about 11 to 12 days, with 99% of people developing symptoms in 14 days. So, yes, there is a margin of error. Nothing is 100% in this world. So there will always be people outside of that 14-day period And those are those kind of freak stories that we're hearing. Oh, they didn't have any symptoms and they tested positive later. But it's all based on kind of what is the safest option. And it's because 99% of people will have symptoms in 14 days. That's where that 14 days has come from. Right. Who is at most risk of contracting COVID-19? Are there any age groups or any, uh, any areas where people are at higher risk? Yeah, so at the moment the advice out there is if you're over 70, you're definitely at high risk. If you've got any specific health um, health concerns, particularly stuff like your kidneys, your liver, your heart, your lungs, um, obesity, diabetes, to just name a few. And then the other thing that we might not think about that much is any areas of high-density living. So in Australia, we're very very lucky to kind of not have a lot of high-density living, but Mm -hmm. where it does apply to us is stuff like nursing homes, group living, correctional and detentional facilities where people are in very close proximity to each other. And that's why internationally we've seen places with high-density living have been significantly more affected by this. Yeah. So if someone's had COVID-19, How do you know that they're no longer infectious? At what point are they no longer infectious? Yeah, so the studies at the moment tell us that around 10 days from the onset of your symptoms um, and then if you've also had resolution of all your symptoms and you've not had a fever for 24 hours, you're no longer infectious. However, what I would advise is to follow your local public health guidelines with regards to this. So especially in Australia at the moment, if you do come back with a positive test, someone will be in very close contact with you personally to let you know when you're safe to be back out in the community and no longer infecting people. Right. So if you contract the virus... For how long after from the the time you contract it, will you keep giving a positive result? I mean, will you continue to give positive results or will will there come a time where there's no longer a positive result? Yeah, so ideally what should be happening is that you shouldn't have a positive swab anymore when you're not actively infected. However, some people we're finding that even when they aren't actively infectious or they don't have the virus, they seem to still be getting positive swabs. Now, there are that's where the blood tests and things can come in handy mm-hmm. because what the blood test can show us is, is this a past infection that you now have some immunity to and potentially that's what's being picked up on the swab tests or is this still an active infection for some reason that we're not able to clear? Yes, because I actually know of a case where that happened and I think they allowed 120 days 
from the time when the person had the virus and because Mm. this person still tested positive after the 120 days, they thought that he still was infectious and put him in isolation as well as everyone that had come into close contact. Mm. So the question here would be, is it possible to contract the, the virus more than once? So there's been cases out there all over the world that say, yes, you can get the virus more than once. Is it likely at this stage? Probably not, um, but it's certainly not impossible. Right. Okay. Let, um, let's, and it yes. would fall under, sorry, just to, yeah. it would fall under much the same kind of territory as you can get the virus despite being vaccinated. So you have some immunity, but nothing's 100%. Right. It's like people if they've had measles or chickenpox or something like That's that. It. You have the the freak of nature thing happen that they have it a second time. Get it twice. That's yep. it. Yep, makes sense. Let's talk about vaccines. Let's ooh. let's ooh that dirty word, vaccination. Can you explain the difference? The differences between the vaccines and whatever you might know about Moderna as well, please. Yeah. So Moderna and Pfizer are actually very similar scientifically with what kind of vaccine they are. Um, so it's developed by a different kind of pharmaceutical company, but mm-hmm. the way that the vaccine's been made is very similar to Pfizer. Um, so I think you can kind of put them in the same box for that purpose. There are slight differences with AstraZeneca and Pfizer. Um, without getting, again, super sciencey about it, the mm-hmm. way that the AstraZeneca works is it actually takes a different virus altogether um, and pops a small amount of COVID um, material inside that different virus. Wow. And then they give you that. And what your body does is that the different virus, your body's not really affected by that. There's lots of viruses we're exposed to every day that we don't Mm. get sick from, and that's one of the viruses they choose. Um, And then what your body does is it detects the small amount of material, the COVID material that they've put in there, and develops an immune response to that. So that's it's called a viral vector vaccine. So it uses that different virus as a vector to deliver some COVID information to your immune system. Um, so that's how the AstraZeneca vaccine works. With regards to the Pfizer vaccine, so they call that an RNA vaccine. And basically what RNA is, is it's a protein that's found in um, COVID-19. It's not DNA. Before anyone gets confused, um, they are not injecting viral DNA into your body to interact with your DNA. That's not happening. What What um, about microchips? Uh, look, my 5G has <laughs> never been better, Marissa, I must say. No, all jokes aside. Um, I, I heard we're all starting to talk Chinese. No. Uh, are we? And I think we're going to develop into lizard people at some point too. I don't. But but with the with the um, RNA, it's again just a protein that they put in the vaccine, and again your body recognizes that and then develops an immune response. So that if if you ever get exposed to that again, your body is like, I know what to do with this. I don't like this, and it's already got that kind of first line of defense, that first wall to say no. Uh, we have a question here. Thank you. Yeah. How long do you think it will take for Australia to have 80% of the population vaccinated? I think that's um, I think that's a really good question. I would like to think that actually with all the recent lockdowns and with how difficult a position New South Wales has been in, it's actually brought to the forefront the importance of vaccinations to try and get back to normality. I think prior to that, because we were very lucky to be in the position that we were, people were kind of just happy to sit back and just Mm -hmm. see what happened and why take the risk. Because at the end of the day, I'm not going to sit here and say there's no risks at all. Um, Our decision-making process is all a risk-benefit evaluation and people just didn't see the benefit if everything was kind of um, happy and we were living our lives. I think realising that this is not going away anytime soon, we've already seen vaccination rates go up. Well, and we're only opening that up to more and more availability. So keeping keeping in mind, a lot of people haven't even been able to access the vaccine until recently because of all the yes. you know age limitations and 
and also depends on location, yeah. I believe. There's just, uh, if you can just clarify, when you talk about symptoms, were you talking about clots? Was that one of the symptoms you were talking about, blood clots? Symptoms of COVID or vaccination? No, vaccination. Yes. Yeah, or so, the risks when you talked about the risks? Yeah, yeah. so um, with the AstraZeneca specifically, there's certainly been some concerns about the blood clotting that's mm-hmm. come out. Yes. Um, it's, it's there. It's been an identified risk. Um, higher risk in those under about 60, which is, again, why the recommendation has been that the older you are, the less likely you are to actually have that as a side effect. So that's why they say it's safer for the um, older people in our population. However, just to keep in mind, so the risk with blood clots with AstraZeneca, it's thought to be 0.004%. To put that in perspective, when you take the oral contraceptive as ladies, 0.1% of having blood clots. Smoking, 0.2%. And having blood clots when you actually have COVID is 15%. So it's not that the risk isn't there, but it's, again, it's all about that risk-benefit evaluation. Mm -hmm. Yes. And having perspective. I think (laughs) we need to have some kind of perspective here. Is it true that the worse the the reaction to the vaccine the better your resistance to the virus. Interesting thought. Um, I don't. I don't know if there's any evidence to um, say one way or another. Certainly, having a reaction to the vaccine seems to suggest that you're definitely mounting an immune response, and that's all mm-hmm. it tells you is that you've developed the immune response that the vaccine was set out to do. Yes. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you didn't have any symptoms that you didn't mount that immune response. Mm -hmm. Why do we have to have two vaccines and we can't have the full vaccine in one dose? Yeah. So, again, not being (laughs) a specialist in vaccinations, Mm -hmm. um, if you think about kind of it's it's about trying to introduce your immune system to recognise something. So, it's about finding that sweet spot about how many times you have to show your immune system that, oh, this part, this virus is still out there. So think about it as a booster shot. So certainly with our tetanus, we have to get our tetanus every five to ten years. We have to get a whooping cough every five years. Um, a lot of vaccinations, even if you think about in childhood, for those of us who have children, um, you have to get a few measles, mumps and rubella vaccines to build that immunity. So thinking is exactly the same and that's not new in the world of vaccinations. Yes. Do you think that we may have to have a third shot in the future? Yeah, so I think because the COVID vaccine is still in its relative infancy at this point, um, that's a little bit difficult to know. Um, it may be like the flu vax where we're looking at getting a booster every year. Um, it may be like, as I said, the tetanus where you're looking at every five years or it might be a one and done. Um, I think slowly they're just seeing how long that immunity lasts for um, and that will only evolve with time, unfortunately. Yes. Why is it that the second Pfizer vaccine is more likely to cause reactions? And I've heard that the first AstraZeneca vaccine is more likely to cause reactions. Is that the general rule of thumb? I think that is the general rule of thumb. Honestly, I have no idea. Um, It must have something to do with the way that your body responds to the different ways that 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 component of COVID is presented to your immune system, but I actually have no idea. I must say, though, that is the general rule of thumb, is that the first AstraZeneca is bad and the second Pfizer's yes bad in terms of how, how you feel within yourself. Yes. What kinds of things can we be doing to protect ourselves and minimise risk and to prevent the spread? So, look, I'm going to be probably saying things that most of us already know, but social distancing. As I said, close proximity, that's how it's spread. Um, Hand hygiene, 
wash your hands. If you weren't doing it before, do it now. Um, wearing a mask. Obviously, again, it's that concept of if two people are wearing a mask and you have a sneeze or a cough or, you know, you spit a little bit when you're talking, if you've got two mask barrier, it's far less likely to have that droplet transmission. And then other things like um, cleaning the surfaces in your house, um, if you're not already doing that super regularly I'd suggest doing that more frequently and then you know in my household being a frontline worker it's about when I come home from work taking my clothes off putting them straight in the wash having a shower the second I walk in the door to try and leave as much as I can outside outside of the house um, setting and certainly if you're in a position to be able to do that no matter where you go um, that could also be helpful. Does there appear to be a certain environment where COVID-19 thrives, like in terms of temperature or, I don't know, does it discriminate? I think it's fairly non-discriminatory, as we've seen that all over the world seems to be affected. Hot, cold, doesn't differentiate by the colour of your skin or your religious beliefs or whatever. I think it's COVID-19 is unfortunately fair game for everybody. Yes. How effective are the masks? Because there are some people that refuse to wear a mask. Then there are people that have said there is no research to back up the claim that masks are effective. So what what is the science telling us? Is there science out there to to There is research out there. There is research out there, both in the context of COVID, but also we need to remember that COVID is just a virus. So there's lots of research out there as to um, how masks help prevent the transmission of every other virus. Um, And you're looking at about 60 to 80%, depending on what studies you read. So again, it's not 100%, but what we're looking at is it's that extra barrier and that extra level of protection along with everything that we spoke about before like social distancing and hand hygiene that gets you closer and closer to that 100%. I don't think Mm -hmm. we'll ever get to 100 but we're getting closer and that's the goal. Right. When they talk about community spread, what actually does community spread mean? So I think that's a really good question. So community spread and the reason that all our politicians and everyone on our TV screens seem to kind of get a little bit nervous about community spread is it's actually when there are cases in our community that we cannot link to other cases that we already know about. So it's the new ones that pop up that we go, we don't know where this person is contracted COVID from and that's where that's why it is concerning if Mm -hmm. for example there is a community spread case of someone in a household and then everyone else in that household also tests positive for COVID-19 the people the other people in that household are not considered part of community spread because it's expected you live with people you're gonna probably be infected with the same virus yep everything you're saying is just so easy to understand and common sense why do people make it so hard like why I mean it it all seems very black and white why do we have to have so many shades of gray like wasn't the movie enough like (laughs) (laughs) okay who should get tested for coronavirus or for COVID-19 I think at this point, anyone who's got symptoms, and those symptoms are what I spoke about earlier, coughs, colds, runny noses, sore throats, fevers. Um, So basically your common cold flu type symptoms, I think you should go get tested. Luckily at the moment in Australia, the likelihood is those symptoms are still coming from probably the flu or the common cold, which haven't gone anywhere. They're still out there in the community. But I think for the safety of our community, it's important to go get tested. Right. What if I don't have symptoms? In what circumstance then should I be tested? Yeah, so I think if you're completely symptom-free, then it should only, you only probably really need to go get tested if it's in keeping with your public health governance. So, again, if um, there's been an alert put out to say that you're a close contact or something like that and someone's gotten in touch with you to say that maybe you've been in contact with someone, that's when I would go get tested if I was completely symptom-free. 
Okay. Now, just assuming that I am an asthma sufferer or I suffer from seasonal allergies, should I still go and get tested if I have any of those symptoms? Yeah, I think um, as a disclaimer, I would say speak to your doctor at the time you have those symptoms to make that decision together. However, as a general rule, you should not get fevers with asthma or allergies. Mm -hmm. The other thing to keep in mind is things like itchy noses and throats as opposed to like an actual cough or something. If you're feeling a bit itchy, itchy eyes, itchy throat, itchy nose, it's probably more likely to be allergic than it is to be COVID. Right. However, again, make that joint decision with your healthcare provider at the time um, that you're thinking about, do I get tested, do I not? Okay. Now, if I am vaccinated, should I still get tested? Yes. As we've already said, so vaccines, none of this is 100%. So you could still have COVID-19. So if you have those symptoms at this point in time, the advice would be still go to get tested. Mm -hmm. Oh, is so fever is the most obvious symptom then? Um, fever might be the most obvious symptom, but certainly if you have a milder infection, it could just be a runny nose, a cough and a sore throat. And certainly in my personal experience, especially working with children where all of them that I see at work have runny noses, coughs and sore throats, um, I occasionally become unwell with runny noses, coughs and a sore throat. So I've had quite a number of um, COVID tests over this time frame um, and none of them did I have fevers with. So I think it's important that even if you just generally feel a bit coldy, fluey, even without a fever, go get tested. Okay. Just I would like to question the effectiveness of the testing because we hear stories that you can be tested in the morning and you're negative, you have a test in the afternoon and it's positive, you may go and have another test after having a positive test and it's negative. So is there like a percentage where it's not effective? Yeah, so again, no testing is perfect. Um, with any tests, what we talk about is what is the likelihood of having false positives and false negatives, and that's with any test we do. Um, now, with the COVID um, nasal swab testing, that exists somewhere in the realms of about 98% is the recent statistics that I read. So it's pretty good. But again, yeah. as we've said all through this, it's not 100%. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that you know, the news and the media always do sensationalise these kind of outlier cases and that's what we hear about. Um, no one's got me on the TV going, Dr Krishnan's had 20 COVID tests over the last 18 months and they were all accurate and appropriate. Um, we always hear about the one or two and we're testing thousands and thousands of people a day. Mm. Um, so, yeah, yeah. something to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Now, just say you test and your test is negative, but your symptoms persist. Should you go and get retested? Yeah, so I think your local public health guidelines will be able to guide you a little bit on that. Um, if it, it, would, it would really depend on how long the symptoms persisted for, um, how long you'd been unwell, if you developed any new symptoms. And the other thing to keep in mind is that we can test for some of the other viruses that are out there as well. So certain with exactly the same nasal swabs. So um, you can make that decision kind of with your GP as to whether it's worth investigating. Is it something else that's causing this so that we can kind of pin it onto something? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's any clear guidelines necessarily around if you have the same illness and you've just not gotten better, what you do. Right. What is the difference between a close contact and a casual contact? Yeah, so, again, this the, the way that we kind of define close and casual contacts is based on where did the contact occur? Was it indoors or outdoors? Was it for how, how long was it for? Um, so there's a few factors that kind of go into that. I think 
the most important thing again will be every state releases the contact um, list and it'll tell you whether you are a close or casual contact. The only reason that they do that is just about risk stratification. So if you're a close contact, you're probably going to be higher risk. And the reason that we define those people as close contact is that at the moment in Queensland, at least, if you're a close contact, even if you have a negative swab, you have to isolate for the 14 days. If you are a casual contact, you are still advised to go get a swab. But if that comes back negative, you can go back to doing your life as you were Mm -hmm. before. Okay. This might sound like a dumb question, but can animals contract COVID-19? So I've actually been asked this question a number of times before. Oh, good. I don't feel so dumb. dumb. There's other dummies. (laughs) Okay. Funnily enough, yes. So um, household pets of people that have had positive diagnoses of COVID-19 have also tested positive. However, they haven't been become particularly unwell with the COVID-19. So please don't be concerned that your dog or your cat is going to, ha- or any other animals you might have at home, is going to become unwell from this. And the mm-hmm. other thing to keep in mind is that the animals can't then pass it on to anyone else. So it might be you to your dog or your cat or your household pet, but then that's kind of where that chain stops. All right. Now, children are contracting the Delta variant and they're spreading that will children be as sick as adults with that variant yeah I think the the frank answer is we don't know um there was initially with the initial outbreaks everyone kind of felt quietly confident that children weren't getting as unwell and were also less likely to transmit it to other people um so we kind of for better or worse, ignored the the, ch- the child population or the youth population. Um, certainly, at least with the school outbreak that we've had in Queensland, none of those children, knock on wood, have been particularly unwell from this. But I think the information will come out as we're getting more and more. We're certainly seeing cases overseas of children, unfortunately, becoming very unwell, passing away from the Delta variant. So I think it's too early to be too complacent about it. I did read somewhere about a multi-system inflammatory syndrome that children, um, yeah. that is a serious condition associated yeah. with COVID-19. Can you tell us a little bit about that one, please, Nidhi? Yeah, so that's typically how most of the young people that have been severely affected by COVID-19 have been affected. Um, And it's basically what the name suggests. Every part of your body becomes incredibly inflamed. So you're talking heart, lungs, brain, everything. And your body just can't function under that. Um, And then um, unfortunately, some of those people just um, haven't really recovered. And the best way to kind of describe what happens is that it's just a severe immune response and your immune system just inflames everything. Wow. What about the recovery road from COVID-19? Now, colleagues that I know in the US, they're talking about a brain fog. Uh, yeah. Another another. Um, Complaint is severe fatigue for months on end. Yeah. Are they the general kind kinds of health ongoing health concerns, or are there others that you're aware of? Yeah, so like most commonly, it is that just really generally fatigued, where you just don't feel like yourself and function like yourself. Some people are saying up to six to twelve months. Mm-hmm. However, there's been a lot of people that have been left with you know ongoing cognitive and physical impairments that are affecting their heart, their lungs, their brain as well. Um, so, I, again, I think it comes back to this is without, you know, trying to change people's minds necessarily about vaccination because that's not what I'm here to do. It's just more to draw attention to the risk and benefit. We, a lot of people say that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years with the vaccine. Are we all going to, as I said before, grow a second skin and another head? And we, we, quite frankly, we don't know. 
I, yes. I think it's very unlikely and time would suggest that vaccines have been incredibly safe for a long time, um, but we don't know. However, on the flip side, we actually don't know what the repercussions of actively having had COVID in the next 10 years are either. And a lot of this, these symptoms don't seem to be particularly positive for the long-term outcomes of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Just say I contract the virus. At what point of time do I need to go to hospital? Yeah, so I think that's a really difficult question, um, especially with a lot of evidence coming out now that people are becoming quite unwell quite quickly. Um, My general health advice, whether it's COVID-19 or not, is that if you feel unwell and you want to seek more advice, go to hospital. Um, and that's for any health health concern at all, is that if you feel like things are getting worse, that um, you're not improving, you should go to hospital. However, specific symptoms to talk about are any trouble breathing, if you're not eating, not sleeping, not keeping anything down, um, not really able to function at all within some realm of normality, I think you should definitely be re-reviewed. Okay. And I guess that goes the same with the vaccine. If you're feeling really, really unwell after 100%. being vaccinated, go and, and be just go to hospital. 100%. And we've seen lots and lots of people come through um, with those exact concerns. They've had the vaccine. They're not particularly feeling well. Um, and I think the important thing to keep in mind is that as doctors, yes, our job is to diagnose and treat, but a lot of our job is also to provide reassurance. So to provide, you know, a educated assessment and provide some reassurance and advice for things you can do at home as well. Um, and we appreciate that the general population are not medical and they nor, nor should they have to be. Yes, is there anything that you would like to add or are there any other questions? from attendees. I have gone through all the questions that I had in mind and the questions that I've been sent from other people. So is there anything that you would like to add perhaps that I you feel people should know about Nidhi? Um, I think we've actually covered a lot of the, the kind of more pertinent common questions that come up. I think vaccine safety has probably been everyone's biggest concern um, at this point and that's kind of been where the hesitancy has been. So kind of what I just wanted to quickly touch on is I think what I hear a lot of is how can this vaccine be safe? It's come about so quickly. Um, And to keep in mind that you know, vaccine trials in general aren't actually that long, even for other vaccinations that have rolled out previously so what we're looking at let me just look at some of my statistics to make sure I get all of this accurate so most vaccine trials are usually um so they run at a stage three trial and that's when it's kind of um tested on people before the official rollout and that normally takes about 12 months however in the 57 vaccines that have been tested in, this is American statistics, but in America in the last um, couple of decades, the safe point in that 12-month period has actually been at two months. Only one vaccine was pulled off the market because of side effects after that two-month period. So it's actually incredibly short study time periods. Um, And with the COVID-19 vaccine, that testing ran for about four to six months before rollout. So we're actually comfortably in that period of safety um, and it has been quite rigorously tested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I know time flies, but it's already 18 months isn't it? Like it's all, it's 18 months since this whole thing started. We thought we were going to be out of like living normal lives after three months. We're all told, oh, you know, this is only going to be a few months, but it's almost 18 months and we're still here. So we have to find a way out of it, don't we? Exactly. 
exactly. It's got to come exactly. a point that we have to, lives have to go back to, it will probably never be our normal, what we've known, yeah. but it has to go back to businesses being able to trade, people being able to, you know, um, have their livelihoods back and and people right. just feeling not as stressed, not the anxiety, mental health concerns reducing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I, there has to come a time where that kind of thing will be our normal, not perhaps exactly. the normal that we knew before. Exactly. We have to be able to get on with living. We must be able to get on with our lives at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've just seen a question from Andrew that I might oh. not have answered, which which is, is it normal to have multiple vaccine options? Yes. Um, so it, it's certainly not unusual. Um, vaccines all work in slightly different ways um, to reach the same result, and there's other vaccines out there that definitely have different um, ways that they work. Um In Australia, we have adopted a kind of streamlined approach where as part of our normal vaccination schedule, they all tend to be the same vaccinations, but that doesn't necessarily mean another country uses the same type of vaccine for the same illness. Um, But part of the reason why we have multiple different types of vaccines is purely supply. Um, Mm. To get that much supply in into a country in the time frame that we need it from one manufacturer if we kind of adopt a few different routes then we can try and vaccinate our population faster they're all just pretty much as effective as one another aren't they mostly so there is some evidence to say that maybe the um the Pfizer slash Moderna so the RNA vaccines are slightly more effective but you're Mm. looking at anywhere between kind of 85 to 95 percent there's some studies coming out of Europe at the moment that actually suggest that it's safe to have both vaccines and that provides the best coverage so Australia is always taken because, again, we're in a very privileged situation. We've always taken a bit of a watch and wait approach to see what happens overseas and in other populations. But that might be some advice that we start getting over the coming few months. Yes. And there's a question there. Is it okay to have a relaxant such as Valium prior to having the vaccine? 100%. Whatever's going to make it most comfortable and easy for you to have your vaccination, that's what I'd recommend. Um, You know, again, working with children, some of those people are terrified of needles. Um, And we've got lots of different techniques, both medical and, you know, non-medical to support them to have needles in their vaccinations. Speak to your local GP as well about other options to um, kind of work around fears of needles and things like that because that's certainly something that is an issue for a lot of people. Um, And as healthcare professionals, we're used to kind of formulating plans for people on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. But Valium's totally fine to take a small amount before if it calms you down. Okay. Any other questions? No, I think we've covered a lot. You've you've been amazing. I think the biggest takeaway for me is common sense. It has been. Thank you. It's been so informative. But it's common sense and everything's so black and white. As I said before, all these variables and all this, when I listen to you speak, I just go, this just makes so much sense. It's so easy to understand. Why has it become such a big thing? Like, you know, it's not even a mountain out of a mold hill. It's like the whole mountain ranges out of the mold hill, you know? You know, none of none of this advice is new. This this type of advice to minimise infection has been around for decades. Um, it's really interesting if you have a look at old documentation about the plague and influenza back in the day. It was all the same advice. I think part yes. of the hesitancy at someone, the moment. Sorry, someone yeah. put something up on social media last night. It was probably the 
the smartest thing I've seen for a long time. It was a really old document and I, I think I screenshot it and it was things to do to prevent influenza. Yeah. It would have been a 100-year-old document yeah. and it, it's, it's, every, the it's the same, same but different virus. Yeah. I think part of the the probably the mountain from a molehill issue comes from, again, a place of privilege, I suppose, where, you know, we all have this wonderful ability to speak our minds and have free choice and free will. And I feel like there's people out there that just potentially feel like that choice is being taken away from them. And I totally, I, I um, empathise with that. Mm. Um, and to those people, I, I guess I just say, you know, try and do your research. Really good resources are your local um, state government websites, the national government website in Australia, the World Health Organisation, and America's CDC actually has a lot of great resources as well. And yes. The other thing is, is that with this, it's not going to take one person. It's going to take all of us. Um, so it's not necessarily about the individual anymore is where we're at. It's about bonding together as a community, as a society um, to try and, you know, get all of us to some level of normality. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest problem with many people is that they don't actually understand what research is. Mm. Now, you have a medical degree. I have a PhD and to earn a PhD, it takes rigorous research. People don't understand what that means. It's not finding something on Facebook and it's not finding an article. If you do any sort of research what you find on the computer does not count that no, as exactly. as that that will not allow that as part of your literature review exactly that is not research research requires rigor and that is not rigorous empirical information it is not so that's what i get angry about exactly I, dr yes. google <laughs> yeah exactly. dr google needs to be fired Thank you so much that, that, you know, everything you've said, I'm sure we've all heard a hundred times before, but it's just having it explained in layman's language and not having media put a spin on it, just having it said as it was said was beautifully articulated, Nidhi. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Voice and Beyond. Now is an important time for all of us to spread positivity and empowerment in our Singing Voice community. It's time for you to invest in your own self-care, personal growth and education. Use every day as an opportunity to learn and to grow so you can show up for your students feeling energized, empowered and ready to deliver your best. Be the best role model and mentor you can possibly be and watch your students thrive as you do. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to share it with a friend or a colleague who you think will be inspired by this. Copy and paste the link and share it with the people you think will enjoy listening to this show. Please share it on social media and use the hashtag A Voice and Beyond. If you would like to help me, please rate and review this podcast and cheer me on by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts right now. I would love to know what it is you enjoyed the most about this episode and what was the biggest takeaway for you. I promise you there are many episodes to follow as I'm committed to bringing you more inspiration and conversations just like this one. I'd like to finish up with my final thoughts. Remember that to sing is more than just learning how to use a voice. 
as singers, our whole body is the instrument and our bodies echo what we feel physically, mentally and emotionally. So singing is not just about the voice. It's about a voice and beyond. Please take care of yourself and I look forward to your company next time.